the Flourishing Communities podcast, where we talk honestly about the beauties and the struggles of forming real community. Not the kind of community where you have to have a North Face jacket in order to join the community, (laughs) but the kind of community where we are received and welcomed, because that's what we have experienced in Jesus. That's right. So our topic for today is radical inclusion and how that is necessary for communities to truly flourish. So when we say radical inclusion, we mean that all are seen and heard and honored in the fullness of who God has made them to be. And this week's small group guide, which you can find in our show notes, is on the passage of Acts 15 which might seem like a long, clunky passage because it is, but it's really significant actually because this was the decision, old school, early church, the confirmation that the good news of Jesus was not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And furthermore, Gentiles could be received and welcome as part of the family of God without having to become Jewish. So, Andy, actually, before we get into it, though, we got a debrief how showing love went, selfless love went last week to our teammates. So, Andy committed to being on time to every meeting. How did that go? And I'm curious, did people notice that you were on time? You know, um, we had a meeting, you and I, (laughs) immediately after that we recorded that podcast. And I was like, oh, crap, I got to be right on time because Caroline's going to be on that. I need to show my, show my love. I was the first person in that meeting. <laughs> you were? And, and then I, well, I was and- like a couple minutes late. Well, no, I mean, our boss was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was the first one. And then. Guess who showed up half an hour? <laughs> Guess who showed up half an hour late to this meeting? <laughs> well, you know, that wasn't what you committed to. Uh, That's true. And so. You know, honestly, uh, that week when I tried to be on time to every meeting, I didn't succeed every time. And to be honest, I doubt many people noticed because I feel like it's kind of, it should be normal to be on time. So it's kind of like, I don't feel like I should get a cookie for being on time to a meeting. (laughs) But I don't think people were trying to give me a compliment or anything. But (laughs) I do feel like more than what was the impact on others, I do think there was an impact on me. Because at the very least, I had to really think intentionally about the next person that I was meeting with. So it was Mm. like, I need to end and I need to care about this person. So it was a really small mind Mm. shift to care about the next meeting on my calendar and to think about them. Even with the simple act of, okay, I got to wrap this meeting up or I got to find a way to end our conversation or we're having such a good time, but I need to go. Yeah. And for me to like take on some of that pain. And I think it revealed the bigger issue, which I just schedule too many things in a day. So there's really no Mm. margin to spend extended time with people because it's like I got back to back to back to back. All these freaking Zoom calls where it's like 60 minutes, then 60 minutes. And I have definitely felt like I need to like cut back on those Zoom meetings so that I actually have margin so that I could I could take an extra 15 minutes to just see how someone's doing or to kind of have some leisurely time. Yeah, that sounds like the best of the of both worlds, like having a 15-minute buffer scheduled between meetings so that both you can enjoy the conversation that you're having and love the next person. That's good. How about for you? Yeah. 
I felt super bad when I showed up half an hour late and I'm not usually like at least that late to meetings, but um, that was hilarious. And then I felt better that that's not what I committed to. <laughs> um, but I committed to something like very amorphous, but I actually tried it. I think I mentioned doing co-working time or the end of our last conversation was like, okay, what's the bigger challenge in our team? And it's like, we have too much work to do. We don't have enough time to do it. How can we offload some of that? So on Friday afternoon, I invited the coworkers to our teammates to a co-working time. Um, I know it's pretty hard to get stuff done at the end of the week when things are feeling super slow. Um, so we jumped on a call, people, mostly people who are in the West Coast and were trying to wrap up their day. And we told each other the things that we wanted to do. And we like played some music and hung out and cheered each other on when we checked something off of our to-do list. And multiple people commented on how fun it was and how productive it was. So that was like a subtle, like, let me try to show some, I wouldn't call that selfless to be honest, because it didn't feel sacrificial, but I did have in mind, like what might serve my teammates. For both of us, it's pretty striking how the way that we practice selfless love was so practical and concrete. It wasn't super mm. idealistic. It was like me being on time, you doing some schedule rearranging or hosting a co-working session. And so I wonder for others uh, who are listening, if you found that to be true, it's helpful to like maybe get a little bit out of the very sentimental idealistic, but actually get into some nitty gritty things of what does it look like to actually be selflessly loving to people in real life. Yeah, that's good. And I'm super proud of us for not just giving someone a bunch of food and calling yes. it selfless love and then being done with it. It was actually harder yes. for us to choose concrete things to commit to. You know, the one trick love pony. If you watch, if you, <laughs> if you listen to the last episode, you know what that means. We are no longer one trick love ponies. That's right. Ew. <laughs> Okay, um, I was curious, Andy, actually, this this question was in the small group guide, but I wonder if we could share some experiences of feeling radically included or being included or maybe feeling excluded and what that was like for us. Yeah, I, I do have one that actually just happened to me recently. And I was a member of the Dropbox community. Uh, if you don't know Dropbox, wait, you know, is that like a cool nickname for like a beatboxing group or a dance? No, group? The, the Dropbox. The oh yeah, Dropbox. I'm gonna drop, 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 bitty box. No, uh, Dropbox. For those of you who don't know, it's a file sharing cloud service. You know, the Dropbox.com. I joined probably. I could have been one of the first users in my school in college over almost 20 years ago, 2003. I joined Dropbox. Nobody knew what it was, but I was like, you know what? This sounds like a great way to share files with people. And <laughs> early on, when you actually join, I invited people to Dropbox. And I probably, I, met, I literally must have invited hundreds of people. Every time I did a project, all of my group of people I invited, and I would get free space. And I got yeah. all these perks because I was like the super fan, early adopter. Um, and then I would, do, I would do IV stuff, and I would go around the country, do conferences. And I would invite, introduce all my coworkers to Dropbox. And so within like 10 years, I had gotten so many gigabytes of free space. I had these perks. And I was part of the Dropbox family. I really, and I love Dropbox because it's an easy way to keep all my files. You know, I had my computer stolen once. 
But because all my files were on Dropbox, boom, I was able to just the next day just kind of stay. And, hey, and, and This is not an advertisement. You can sorry. keep going. So, well, no, but here's the thing. <laughs> uh, recently, I accidentally changed my Dropbox account from personal to business. Ouch. And then when I changed back, I lost all of my perks. Like, wow. And it was like 20 years. Oh, my God. Of committed fandom to Dropbox, and I was basically like a you know a plebeian, like a, a, a I, I was like a like a, like a peasant, or I was like a you know a no longer anyway. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I basically you was were an like influencer, as if I was an insider. Yeah, and so I I actually went on Dropbox customer support as you do, and I said, oh you know I've been a loyal customer for twenty years. Is there anything you can do? And and Dropbox customer support they're super responsive they're a great twitter uh, that's how you get in touch with them i'm like i'm sorry mr kim there's nothing we can do i'm sorry and i was like wow i have like supported you guys for 20 you don't know how many people i referred to dropbox but you know what you guys are a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company and i'm just this little little guy here and honestly i was devastated Wow. Okay. So you tasted the glory. You tasted the power of being in the insider community of being like deeply included. That's so interesting because then it reminds me of all these stories of knowing who was really in the inside crew. You know what I'm talking about? Like growing up, I'm like, Oh, I know who the cool kids are. Or I know like, who's the really accepted people or even like in intervarsity communities, you know, I came from a chapter that had a huge fellowship. And so our leadership team was really huge. And it was almost like to be included was to be a leader in intervarsity. And there was like a, a vibe about like being on leadership because the community was so tight knit, you know, you see on Instagram, your like three closest friends hanging out with you without you. Mm. It reminds mm. me of those stories that made me wonder like, oh, okay, where do I stand in this community and how am I viewed and how am I received? Which is I like interesting because I think in our, even in our team dynamics, you and I are probably perceived as being insiders on the team because we've been here for so long and because we have known each other for so long even if that might not be our actual experience, which is very intriguing. Yes. Or it's, I've been part of communities where everybody, when we actually finally all have a conversation, everyone feels like an outsider oh, and thinks the other person is an insider. So we have this yes. in Korean Americans uh, who gather, who are in a varsity staff. And we just talk about what does it mean to be Korean in varsity and just in the various dynamics. And I can't tell you the number of times where, the person that I thought is like, they are like the most Korean. Like, and I don't yeah. think I'm like super Korean. It's like, oh, they actually felt like they weren't Korean enough. And they look at me and they're like, oh, Andy, you're so Korean. Yeah. And then we realize that we just all feel kind of excluded or we feel maybe a sense of we don't fit. We don't fit the X, Y, Z. But then it's this, like the idea of the ideal Korean yeah. that fits into this Korean inner circle is this made up thing that nobody fits in. And so yes. while all of us feel excluded, we all kind of then silently resent each other. And then once we finally talk it out, we realize, no, actually, there is no ideal Korean person, but yeah. Koreanness looks so different for all of us. I wonder, Andy, if you could help us connect, like, what is it about 
community that always creates this sense of insider versus outsider and this fleeting arbitrary sense of like what it means to truly be an insider and that being defined in so many different ways. It feels like that might be a pattern in the communities that we see around us. I think that tendency to divide people and to exclude some and include others is just a natural human. It's just a part of the natural human condition where to survive, we need the people who are going to support us Mm -hmm. and who are going to be with us, who are our team. Maybe it's our immediate family. Maybe it's our cultural group. Maybe it's XYZ. And then we have the people who are against us, our enemies that we threaten us. It's important for us to realize that when we exclude others, it actually makes us feel better. It may not be a good long-term and redemptive life-giving strategy, but that's really what we see happening all over our world right now with rise in nationalism, where it's like, okay, like we're going to like vilify this group of people or these immigrants mm-hmm. to try to make ourselves feel better. And leaders know that that works. And so they mm-hmm. employ it media employs it. And oftentimes ministries, we might actually employ that ourselves too, whether we realize it or not. Right. But really this pattern, which you have named has happened in history is kind of humanity's tendency. It leads to destruction and it leads to violence and it leads to death actually. So, and maybe that's why I was reacting to this good or bad thing. Cause I was processing like the implications of what you were saying and what happens when a community does that, like not on a fun, like elementary school level, though that could have lasting impact. But when we start talking about it on a groups or like systems level, but we are saying that actually communities that are centered on Jesus are not meant to perpetuate the violence in the world and the violence and destruction or um, hatred and exclusion that is the natural tendency of communities when they come together. But actually, Jesus has shown us a different way that theoretically, maybe through the power of the Holy Spirit, breaks and disrupts this need for being an insider versus an outsider, this exertion of wanting to show power Um, maybe it's like our identities are so strong enough in Jesus that we don't need that deeper confirmation I'm processing here. But I think there's something about the nature of the community that we're talking about, a flourishing community centered in Jesus that does not follow or that should not follow those models. But one, how is that possible when we're human (laughs) beings? And how do we look out for that in communities that we're creating? If we know that that's the tendency if we know that that's the pattern, then yeah, what is it? What is it that we need? Yeah, and I, I do think part of what we need is to recognize the human tendency for exclusion, how that is the common narrative that, from as young kids, we practice in junior high and high school and college, um, that there is a short-term benefit uh, to excluding others. Uh, at least if we happen to be the one to exclude, or if we've actually experienced that exclusion, we just turn around and exclude them back. So we feel better about ourselves. And I know I've done that, whether I've been on the end, I've been, you know, the one to exclude because I wasn't, I wasn't involved. I wasn't invited to the cool kid circle. So whatever, I'm going to just make my own little, uh, you know, uh, anti-cool kid group. And (laughs) that becomes actually the cycle of violence. And there's this great Mm. book, a really classic book called Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale, but he's 
he paints this picture of how you see cycles of violence, exclusion, and basically going from oppressors to oppressed, the, uh, whether it's in Yugoslavia or in Rwanda, where you have a group that's oppressed, and then they become the oppressors. And we see human history operating this way. And what Wolf suggests is actually the way out of this cycle of violence is to remember uh, what God did in the person of Jesus, that he actually broke the cycle of violence mm-hmm. by coming into our world, and he actually embraced all of humanity, and actually uh, both victims of violence and oppression, but also the perpetrators, and Jesus actually tried to remake humanity in a new way. And so what Wolf says is it's not enough just to say, all of you who are the oppressors, you need to face judgment, and all of you who are oppressed need to be lifted mm-hmm. up. But actually, God was doing something even bigger by trying to break the cycle altogether so that we don't just return to that downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Really, it's this idea of God entering humanity, embracing us, actually, that Jesus becoming flesh, becoming a human being, that, that there's something really powerful about God becoming one of us entering into our mess, which not only restores us and has the power to restore us, but gives us an example of how we are supposed to engage with exclusion and oppression and violence. So are you saying that in Jesus, we have experienced deep inclusion? And because Jesus showing us a new humanity and making a way for us to be made almost into new human beings that don't have to default into these tendencies and propensities towards exclusion, towards violence, towards destruction, but instead shows us a new way towards inclusion and embrace, which is only possible through the Holy Spirit in us. Because we've experienced all this, you're saying this is why we can actually create different kinds of communities that operate by different rules and that have different tendencies. Yeah. And, uh, I think about a passage that I, I learned as a kid, uh, Galatians 2.20, that says, I have been crucified in Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me. And I, I remember memorizing that as a kid. But in this context, I feel like I've, it's opened up some new meaning because part of what that passage says is that when we put our trust in Jesus— we actually join into his story and into his life and we become changed. We have a new life. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of crazy about Christianity, I think, is this idea of uh, we are new, we are being made new in Christ, but we also experience the reality of our humanness. And so mm-hmm. there is in us uh, this new life of Christ, this radical inclusion that we see in the life of Jesus but we also see kind of the remnants of our very human, selfish self that wants to exclude other people. Mm. And part of working out our salvation, both individually and corporately, is actually living into the life that Jesus wants us to live, that he calls us to live, that he empowers us to live, mm. but also being really aware of our, you know, to kind of biblical terms, our fleshly, very humanly tendency to just perpetuate cycles of violence. Yeah. 
I want to hold the point that you're making with the importance of our conversation on embodied faith from a few episodes ago, because it's one thing to, we can't, we're not saying just like passively, we are made into new human beings, but actually we need to embody what we believe. So if we believe this to be true, if we believe that we are caught up in Jesus' story so that actually this generosity and hospitality and and welcoming in of Jew and Gentile alike and there not being these barriers for joining into the community of Jesus based on ethnicity, based on gender, based on power or access, like in Jesus, those terms for access are removed. And if we believe that, what does that mean for us to live that out in terms of practice? Like, yes, we are being formed, we are being shaped to be made different, but we also need to practice living that out, right? We need to actually have tenants that our communities operate by, like you're naming, knowing that that is our tendency, knowing that we will want to move towards exclusion. So what rules of operation do we have to set in place? What do we need to look out for in ourselves or in our community to make sure that they don't become exclusionary communities, actually, but ones that model and that demonstrate that that generous love and welcome? Yeah. And I do think while we do need to work on actions, and we were going to get to some practicals like later in this episode, what's true, what the Christian faith says, and if, you, if you're not a Christian listening to this, you might not believe us, and then maybe you may be a Christian and are, are skeptical of this, is literally if we place our faith in Jesus and actually we center ourselves on him, that something is unlocked, something is changed. Spiritually, the Holy Spirit changes something in us so that we are different and that actually we are dead with Christ and we rise with Christ. And that actually is a now reality, but it's also a future reality. So I'm not skeptical. Maybe I'm skeptical. What am I feeling right now? I keep wanting to push the button that you're making and lead us to action because I'm like the witness of churches in the United States contradict what you're saying. Like, especially when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about race, when we talk about gender, it gets really messy. Like, it doesn't feel like people are have totally changed. It doesn't feel like individuals or communities have experienced transformation because we keep perpetuating violence against people that we're trying to love and want to love. So I hear what you're saying in the like, we are we are transformed and we are changed, but I keep very quickly wanting to be like, but are we? <laughs> or like, that change doesn't seem like it's stuck for everyone or in different ways, you know, even in ourselves. <laughs> so I, yeah, that's why I have a hard time of like, okay, it's a great idea and I believe that in theory, but I still see the way there's a disconnect between the true work that Jesus has done in transforming us and how people live, how we live. Yeah. And I, I think I am absolutely real and I, I completely agree. I think the challenge. So for me, the reason why I'm kind of trying to, it really, it's, it's trying to hold attention to both sides because I think on the other side, I think the danger is we say, okay, the way to create radical inclusion is to basically have the best rituals and mm -hmm. the best practices. And really that just becomes like, how can you like create the most strategies? And uh, if that's the case, then really we don't really need God. We could just, you know, like, and part of this is like 
and and I think part of what Wolf would say, and really I think what he's trying to build this off of is what we see in the New Testament saying, the only way for new life is if the Holy Spirit somehow breaks in. And so mm-hmm. I agree, the church's witness, especially right now, it's really suspect. And I do think we need to take a hard look and say, what is, what is, what's gone wrong? And yeah. I do feel like there's some practices and some things that we need to concretely do, as we just talked about in our um, selfless love yeah. debrief. But I also think it's maybe a need for us to cry out to God even more to say, we really can't solve this on our own and we need to repent. We need to mm-hmm. um, humble ourselves and we need to say like, Lord, would you speak to us because this isn't working. And yeah. um, so hopefully in, in this episode and in the, in the whole flourishing community series, it's holding intention, the reality of like, we can't do this without God's action, but mm. we also need to take responsibility for ourselves. Yeah, that's true. And I hear you. You're telling me that, like the best community tenants, the best practices are not going to automatically create the kind of inclusion that will lead to flourishing or like the flourishing community. Um, and I'm saying it's wishful <laughs> thinking to think that only like Jesus saves me and I knew will also lead to this transformation. And that's a good word. Like, what does it mean to know that the community that we're describing in this podcast and in the flourishing communities material, like it is only possible through the Holy Spirit and embodying our faith. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And those things are deeply necessary. But I like I even think about the best intentioned, like communities that I've been a part of that have committed to the messiness, like committed to the work of wanting to truly welcome and receive and extend hospitality to one another and like pray their heads off. I don't know, yeah. is that a phrase? Even then we run into challenges yeah. and we run into issues of exclusion and destruction. Yeah. And so maybe if you're listening to this and maybe some of you, you're like, oh, Caroline, I'm totally with you. You got to keep preaching. Or maybe some of you might be like really like on board with what I'm saying. Part of what I think what we're kind of getting at is you need both of these things. This this is not one one versus the other. It's not just focus on Jesus and do the work, but it's both together. And so Mm -hmm. part of I think I love these types of conversations is that Caroline pushes me and so in your community, maybe identify, are you more one way or the other where you're praying all day? And that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with praying and worshiping and focusing on Jesus. But maybe you need to be pushed into action, not to let go of prayer, uh, but to actually like think about concretely what does it mean to live it out? And maybe some of y'all have been really focusing on concrete, practical action steps, but maybe you've unintentionally taken God out of the mix. And to not only keep doing those good things, but actually fix your eyes on Christ and, and somehow hold those things together. So you, we need each other. The dangerous thing would be for Carolyn and I to like create factions in our community to say, oh, I'm the worshipful, prayerful faction and I'm the action faction, you know? And that as communities, maybe there's seasons where we are trying to figure out how to hold those intention hmm. and we need to kind of go back and forth. So really try to listen to one another and don't just label each other. Don't label the action faction as like, you know, I don't know, people who don't care about Jesus or don't label the worship <laughs> prayer faction as just the pie in the sky, like, people you know. People who never do anything about People who never do in. anything. Um, but try to actually practice understanding each other. And that actually is one way to practice radical inclusion. That's a good word. I think we underestimate what it means for you and I to be national leaders, sometimes in workspaces 
having leadership influence, like maybe we're a speaker, maybe we're on a worship team, and what it means that we want to hang out with some people intentionally, and we don't prioritize our time with other people intentionally. And that can be experienced and received in different ways by our peers, by our colleagues, by students even. I want us to practice some self-awareness of how might we unintentionally be continuing practices of exclusion in how we carry ourselves and how we prioritize our time. And that's hard because especially when I'm like reuniting with people after so long, I'm like, I haven't seen my friends in years. And these are the, this is the reason that I like love my job and love doing what I'm doing is being able to have quality time and space to deeply connect with some old friends. But then I'm like, Oh, how does the young staff feel about that? That like, they can't get any of my time because I'm too busy wanting to hang out with my own, my own friends. That's hard. Well, And it's, you know, what's really interesting. I mean, to be real, it's like, you know, I've been on staff for uh, almost 15 years now and I still struggle with insecurity all the time. And even though I've like done like led worship at Urbana and I've done all these things, you would think I would feel secure but I'm always trying to get into the next group or whatever I perceive in the moment as like the cool kids. Yeah. I mean, some of this honestly is like therapy of like, okay, I've had lots of issues that go back to being a kid, uh, the only Asian kid in my school who's overweight and I'm always trying to fit in. And uh, some of that's therapy. Some of it is a, a genuine spiritual change to say, I don't need, to try to fit into this group, but I can actually give my time to whoever God puts in front of me Mm -hmm. and I will just focus on them and not worry. Why am I not Mm -hmm. hanging out with other people? And I know honestly, like large groups after large group, the hardest thing after church. Yes. I want to find the funnest, coolest group. And I just want (laughs) to hang out with them and go out to lunch with them or go out to dinner after, you know, after large group, we're going off a boba or whatever. And so then I'm like, oh man, I got stuck with like this group or this person. And I do know that like, I need God to like rewire wow. my heart and mind uh, so that I can just be like, okay, this person's in front of me right now. And this, I just have to talk to this person mm-hmm. and I'm going to like give them my entire attention and not just kind of look over my shoulder. Um, and that's really hard. Oh, that's so real. And those after fellowship hangouts, those after fellowship activities, who is intentionally invited and told the plan of where people are going and who is that not passed on to like that? That's hard. And that sucks. And if you're an university leader listening to this podcast, I want you to try with us um, because you're not the only one who does it and experiences it. I want you to try with us. Like what Andy's talking about here is to treat the person in front of you on your zoom Maybe if you're starting to do in-person stuff again, like how do you treat them as a true human being made in the image of God that carries a beautiful story and has something to contribute to the community? It might cost you like, and I want to name that, right? If for us to choose not to be in the fun crowd, it could feel costly. Like meta, it feels stupid, but in the moment, I know how it feels costly. I know how it feels like, uh, 
I'm not going to be invited or I'm going to miss out or I'll see everybody having a good time on my Instagram account. But what does it mean to practice this kind of love and generous welcome as a community? Annie, I want to know if you've ever felt excluded by me before. Well, I don't I don't have anything yet, but maybe we could maybe it might come up in the next three episodes who knows okay give me give me three episodes think about it oh yeah that's well, I, I should the, ask the very you, last episode of the I know, season I know, is when I know. Andy unpacks all his ish he's been holding <laughs> well have I uh has there been a time where I've excluded you I know I have definitely experienced the I want to sit by Andy but I could tell that Andy's scanning the room to see who he wants to sit with <laughs> Like in meals or hangouts and stuff of like, oh yeah, I know what Andy's doing. And I know he might not sit next to me. But then there are other times where you have sat next to me. And if I'm honest, in those moments, I had a split se- a split second thinking of like, who wants to sit next to us that can't mm-hmm. sit next to us or isn't sitting next to us. And maybe that's something worth processing with our teammates and owning for our teammates. And apologizing for the times where we might have excluded them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I I would give anything to sit next to you right now. <laughs> oh, Easy that's a to creepy. say. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like, one, maybe slightly creepy. Two, know, easy to say because there's literally no one else in your room right now. No, actually, maybe that, that, that is true. <laughs> no, Matt, not here. Oh, yeah, well, that's why you want to sit next to me. There's no one better to sit next to because there's no, literally no. no one. No, but I I do think, okay, you're right. No, that's, I, that's, <laughs> I, I fully own it. I no, own it. No, you have to say I would give anything to sit next to you at the coolest party in the world. Yes, yes. Well, if we were at staff conference, I would want to sit next to you. If we were with all of our friends from all over the country, all the university people, I, I know that's to. part of the problem, right? We need better physically structured tables so that there are more options for people to sit by than just like the Tetris tea. <laughs> There's no way around the lunch table, the cafeteria effect. It just happens mm-hmm. all the time. And you, ne- and you never grow out of it. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation, Andy. Thank you for being willing to be honest and sit in a little bit of discomfort. But Honestly, I did not expect our conversation to go the direction that it did, but I feel like we covered a lot. Thanks, y'all, for hanging out with us, for being a part of this conversation. And maybe you want to share this podcast, this episode with folks in your community to to continue that conversation. Uh, You can uh, visit our show notes uh, where we'll have more information about this topic, including an amazing sermon that Caroline preached on Acts 15. That's right. And so you could, yeah, so you could dig into the actually this really profound story of the Jerusalem Council and what that might mean for us today as we try to practice radical inclusion. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at iv.flourishingcommunities. And why don't you uh, post, how are you practicing radical inclusion? Uh, Carolyn and I, we're going to continue to try to practice this with our teammates this week, and we want you to do the same. Come back next time, and we'll share a little bit about how it went. Hey, you want to say bye? (laughs) Bye!